Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get started here tonight. And I am going to call on Larry. Larry, right? <laughs> you know, it, it almost eluded me there. All I could remember was Ken. You don't. <laughs> So here we are, halfway through our diagram, which we started last week. And let's remind us where we are here. We are suggesting, um, and we'll come back to this to sort of wrap it up, that what ties the scriptures together or moves the storyline forward is sort of a twofold idea here of uh, the government of God. And we've said that there are effectively two governments of God. That's the word that Calvin used, to the two governments of God. Uh, Luther called it the two kingdoms of God. Uh, the Dutch, Dutch Reform called it the two spheres of God. So take your pick, what you want to call it. Um, there's, there are good reasons not to use kingdom that we're going to point out tonight, uh, but that's probably been the most common. Uh, so I, I made it an S for sphere, uh, but... Uh, you can make it whatever you want. So you've got a, what we call here a civil sphere in which God exercises his sovereignty over all that he has created. Okay? Irrespective of whether he is ruling unbelievers or believers, uh, ruling them doing spiritual things or secular things, this is the civil sphere. Down on the bottom here, we have going within that kingdom what we might call a redemptive sphere, okay, or a religious sphere, if you want to make another, make, make the R something else, okay. What we've got here is a, the group of people which we might call God's elect. Now, as we're going to see that there's, there's something about, I, I'm, I'm, I'm equivocating just a little bit here, because the elect we're going to be talking about first thing tonight, the elect nation, is not the same as the redemptively elect that we're going to be talking about with the, uh, with the church. They're not exactly the same, because not everybody who's in Israel is a believer, as, but, uh, uh, but for now we'll just, we'll just put it there, and maybe, maybe that's why it's best to call this the religious sphere. Okay, this is where God is having fellowship, specifically, not just with man in his image generally, but with a people that he has called out for himself, okay? And we see these sort of going parallel tonight, and, and, we're, and we just got to, at the end last week, where they sort of merge. But let's just review here. Genesis 1 and 2, there is no need for a redemption uh, because everything's fine. Uh, Adam and Eve, perfectly related to God, perfect harmony and fellowship. They meet daily at night where they walk together with God in the garden. And so all we have here are the ground rules for humanity, what are called the dominion mandate. Uh, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, uh, rule over everything that I have created. Uh, and, and part of this, I think, would include not only the, the uh, ruling the animals, but also the plants and also the resources that are available in the earth. Okay, so that's the dominion mandate. 
this is something that is really the ground rules for mankind. This is what mankind is supposed to do in perpetuum. Okay, there's no, there's no end to this line effectively. Okay. However, of course, Adam falls, uh, immediately creating tensions. Okay. God says, okay, I'm not going to meet with everybody daily in the garden. I am going to use my spirit and the conscience, uh, operating through the conscience uh, and through a convicting work, we might say, whereby he is, he is informing people by the law written upon their hearts what's right and wrong. Of course, as we, as we got to Genesis 3, uh, God says in frustration, I am not going to do this forever. 120 years, I'm going to destroy the whole place and start over effectively uh, with Noah. Okay, so this is how God is governing or administering, and remember those are the key words here, that's a dispensation, it's an administration or the way that God rules his, his universe. But there's also now a second track that begins when God gives this first gospel, or the, that's what Proto-Evangelium means. So the first gospel, there's a promise here made to Eve, it's a very basic promise, not a lot of detail. There's going to be a seed. That seed's going to be your salvation. That seed is going to crush the head of the serpent that, that uh, deceived you into sinning. Okay? And so if you believe this promise, you can be right with God. And they do, apparently. Adam and Eve do. And some of their children do. Not all of them. Uh, Seth appears to be the godly line. Enoch is perhaps the most famous of the godly ones. Uh, he is, uh, walks with God, and uh, one day he was not because God took him. Okay, so he, these are people who are uh, not only obeying their conscience, but also rightly related to God. Then the flood comes, and uh, the crack in our, in our uh, chalkboard helps us out here. Uh, this, is where, uh, this is where there is a formalization of this civic realm, the civic sphere. Uh, up till this point, it's been somewhat individualized, God's ruling individuals through their conscience. But now it's formalized into something corporate, okay? God says in, 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 uh, in uh, Genesis 9, 1 to 6, gives new rules. Many of them are the same, be fruitful, multiply, but there's a few extra uh, add-ons in here uh, where you're allowed to eat animals now. Of course, at the same time, the animals are scared of you so that they don't get wiped out by you, so it creates something of a balance of harmony uh, so that there's not a, you know, a mass uh, death of all the animals here. Uh, and then the, the big thing that's added here, if a man sheds a man's blood by men corporately, his blood shall be shed because in the image of God... God made him. So because man is in the image of God, he is special, and he is singled out for this. And if someone takes another man's life, then collectively mankind are supposed to uh, gather him up and put him to death. Okay, so capital punishment is instituted here at this time. Human government, primitive at this point. It looks as though, um, I mean, Noah's the only, you know, Noah's really the only guy here, his three sons. Uh, but as, as time goes on, these, these spread out, and these clans begin, these clans, these families, these clans. Uh, they're called cities. Uh, probably that's a, a little bit of a, 
of a of an aggressive word there, probably just you know villages with, and then eventually they become walled. But don't think millions of people were probably talking hundreds at first, and then they get bigger and bigger. Uh, but so human government has its formalization here. There's nothing really new about how to rightly be, be rightly related to God. Uh, all we have is the uh, the same promises, and uh, perhaps uh, it's shrouded a bit in in mystery here because we just don't have enough information, but we do seem to have them realizing that there is supposed to be some sort of sacrifice uh, whereby one is acceptable to God. It really starts all the way back here with with Abel and Cain who are who are giving what appear to be thank offerings to God, and they seem to realize that this is an appropriate thing, although we, we just don't have the detail of why. Uh, but this seems to continue because we find uh, individuals along the way here uh, sac uh, sacrificing. Uh, we've got uh, Abraham sacrificing and seems to know that he's to do it. Uh, we've got uh, we've got Job who's sacrificing on behalf of his family and seems to be uh, understanding that this is the appropriate thing to do. Uh, whether that was necessary in order to be right with God is not clear. The scriptures don't actually say as much, uh, but it, it may be part of the oral tradition that's preserved uh, when God was talking directly with people. Then along comes Abraham. Okay, Abraham doesn't really make too much changes in the way the rest of the nations around him are governed, okay? Except, with the one exception, that's why we have the little arrows here, that they are supposed to be rightly related to Abraham's clan in order to be right, uh, to, to, be, uh, to be blessed, okay? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you, okay? So in order for these, these, these groups to go move forward in, uh, in, in confidence and comfort, they had to be nice to Abraham's family. Now, Abraham gets a lot of promises. Okay? It's a complex promise. It actually uh, sort of feeds to us in about four different locations. Uh, we've got uh, Genesis 12 and 15 with, with Abraham, and then you've got uh, promises made, uh, promise, similar promises made to Isaac and to Jacob. So we've, we've, got, we've got the, uh, the, the promise sort of spilled out over a course of, of several chapters, but we find a, gr a great deal of information about what's coming. This seed here that was promised to Abraham, uh, to, 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 to Eve, is going to be funneled through Abraham, and Abraham seems to get a little bit more uh, understanding of what's going to happen. Probably not timing yet, but he's got, a, got an idea of what's going to happen, and it's credited to him for righteousness. Okay, that's what Hebrews said. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So Abraham was a believer, and he was justified. And that's, that's what justification is, right? So he's justified, and so this is how one was to be rightly related to God in, in, a, in an eternal sense or in a, in, a, in a personal sense. You had to believe the promises specifically given to Abraham, and by doing so, your faith could be credited to you for righteousness and make you a member of this kingdom whose builder and maker is God that Abraham is looking forward to. Okay. So we move forward then. Now we come to Moses. This is where we sort of left off here. And what we're going to discover here is that these two spheres, for the first time in human history, really, 
merge in the theocratic nations. Okay? In this theocracy, God is effectively ruling over his people, his, his elect people, Israel, and the arrangement is comprehensive. Okay? The law is long, it's involved, it's detailed. And it covers not only how one can be right with God, but how one can be right with community. Okay? And so there's all kinds of instructions that are civil and moral and, and ceremonial here. So all of this comes together into one. It's merged. Okay? This is going to become important here in, in a little bit here. So, but for now, just recognize that there's a merging here in this theocracy. Um, and there's one... There's one organization, it has multiple officers, there's a king, and there's priests, not, they're not, they're, those aren't merged yet, that's coming, okay, but for now, they've, they've got separate officers, okay, so we can put, we can put up here, uh, kings and priests, but there's a, there's a conflation here, I mean, all the money goes to one pot. Okay, the, 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 the tithes that are collected. They go into one pot. There really doesn't seem to be a differentiation along civil and cultic lines. I mean, who, who pays for the uh, people who are poor? Well, the theocracy does. Okay? We can ask that question today and come up with, with two separate answers, right? Who, who, who pays for the, the poor? Is it the state or is it Christians, the church? Okay? And that's the question we're going to have to ask up here. But right here, when we ask that question, it would be like, well, the organization does that. The, the, the kingdom, the theocracy, that the kingdom does everything. Okay? Let's, let's go through this formally here. So let's talk about here. We're on, excuse me, it's page 23 for me. It's not for you. Uh, but letter E, the dispensation of law. Uh, 22 for you. Okay. Dispensational explanation of the term. Again, we're trying to choose terms here that tell us something about how it's administered. And the administrative entity here, how is it governed? Well, it's a law. It's a, if I can put it this way, it's a republic. Okay? It's a theocratic republic. God is the king, and he rules through his, these republican principles or the law. Okay? So it's a theocratic republic, if we can call it that. Probably more... It's probably more accuracy a theocracy, but remember, God is somewhat distant here. He's, he's ruling immediately through human leaders and a law, okay? Although he's ultimately behind it all. So the law of Moses was the governing instrument of the theocratic kingdom established at Sinai. This is the political structure. The dispensation of the law was the most comprehensive dispensation up to this point, providing not only political legal code and human rulers standing in the place of God, but also religious structures, temple priests, sacrifices, not only for the ethnic nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And so that's why we put the nations up here, who are going along just as they had been, but in order to be rightly related to God, they had to come and, use the, uh, and utilize the priestly services of this kingdom of priests. These were a kingdom of priests for the nations. At least that was their intended function. It doesn't appear that they do a very good job of this, but that was the goal. 
That was, that was the purpose. Now, the reason we call it law is not because the rest of the dispensations didn't have rules. That's not the point. As we've seen, rules are present in every dispensation. We're going to see them in the next one, too. Uh, but during the dispensation of law, the Mosaic Code contained the whole of the administration for the period, not only in the moral realm, but also the civic, political, cultic realms as well. How long does it last? Well, it starts formally at Sinai. Okay? Through this point, uh, up, up through this point, there is a developing nation, but it's not formal yet. There is no ruler. There is no legal code. There's no constitution. Okay, once we get to Sinai here, we now have a constitution, the Ten Commandments, and it, and it expands out from there. And then there's also effectively a ruler. Now, he's not a king yet. There's provisions for a king in the law. For now, we've just got a, a, a leader who is Moses, and there's a series of leaders, judges, uh, that, that take over until we finally get to Saul, uh, where Saul is the first of the kings. He doesn't follow the rules, and so uh, he's, he's immediately ousted, and the real, the true king, David, is, is put into place. So uh, the, the Davidic covenant sort of, if we can put it here, is you know, in the middle. So this is a further funneling of, of the promises. David is the one who has said, you're the, one, you're the man, you're the line. And, and the one who's going to come from you, we find out a little bit more about him. This branch of David is going to not, uh, is not only going to be the savior, but also a ruler. He's going to rule from Zion. And so we find some of this developing a little bit. We get a little bit more information about what's going on here, but not substantively, substantively any change in the, in the administration. Okay? So it lasts from Sinai until... Uh, until what we're going to say is probably Pentecost, okay? Uh, the reason I say, well, we're, we'll talk about specifically why it's Pentecost, uh, but we find Galatians 3.17 actually makes it very clear how long this period lasts. It says here, what I mean is this, the law which was introduced 430 years after the promise to Abraham does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and do away with the promises. Okay, so this this is put in place 430 years after Abraham until Christ came. Okay, now we could quibble a little bit about exactly what that means. Is it when he arrives, and when his public ministry begins, when he dies, when he rises again, when he leaves? Uh, I, I, for reasons we'll talk about later, I think it's probably best to talk about Pentecost being the, 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 the beginning of the next dispensation, uh, but uh, uh, Christ marks the end. Christ is the completion of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Once Christ has got to come and done his work, the law no longer has any function, no more credible, legitimate function. It is, it's gone. It's done. And so that's, that's, again, much of the emphasis we find in the New Testament that the law is done. We don't have to obey it anymore. doesn't mean we have no rules. We do, you know, it's just you know, a free-for-all. But that law which governed this theocracy has been set aside. And the theocracy isn't, isn't running uh, today either. Okay, so new revelation. Well, really, the entire contents of the law, the prophets, including moral, civil, ceremonial aspects... Uh, there's new administration, 
Israel was to be a theocratic state, complete with a comprehensive legal code, provision for a ruler and king, provision for direct revelation from God. So if there was not enough information in the law, there was actually provision made through A, prophets, and then B, through this Urim and Thummim, this rather mysterious, you know, we don't even really know much about it, this, this device. Uh, that was used, uh, rather small device contained in the breastplate of the uh, of the uh, the high priest, um, and somehow uh, through apparently through a series of flashing lights, uh, there was some sort of uh, information granted by God to the kings as necessary. So he got special revelation. Uh, don't ask me more. I don't know. I, I wish I did know more. Uh, some have suggested perhaps it was even some sort of a like a, like a computer screen. Um, it seems a little bit anachronistic, but uh, who knows? Uh, some some sort of flashing lights. That's the name. That's what the words mean. Urim and Thummim, the the lights. Uh, so so it's hard to know exactly what it is. Israel and the whole world were to exercise faith as expressed through the Levitical cultus. And when I say cultus, don't think. <clears throat> Bad, like cult. What, what I simply mean is the religious forms. That's all I mean by that. That's what cultus means, uh, including all of its sacrifice, annual feasts, as a necessary expression of true reconciliation with God. Again, let me stress here that doing those things didn't save one any more than obeying rules saves a person today. However, this was the expression of someone who truly has faith. Today we also have expressions of our faith. Uh, those who, who truly believe his word will be baptized and added to the church. Okay, so that's, that's the visible expression of our faith. We don't need to do those things in order to be saved, uh, but, it is a, but it is a reflection of, of what faith is. A true faith will look like its obedience to what the uh, what what God says we ought to do. Okay, that makes sense. Stop me at any time. I like to stop talking. I talk too much. So now there's responsibilities, new responsibilities as well. Keep the whole law and live. In fact, there's this fascinating statement here in Leviticus 18:5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does that, I am the Lord. So in order to be rightly related to God, all you have to do is completely obey the law. Easy, right? So hypothetically, one could be saved by obeying the law, but actually none could because of total depravity. Okay? And we're, and we're going to find that why, does, why, is, why is Christ's sacrifice valuable for us? Because he keeps the law in our stead. Okay? That, that, I mean, that, was, that was the condition. Someone has to keep the law perfectly. You, you flopped. Okay? But God did it for you and canceled out the law with its regulations by completing it, by fulfilling it in its, in its perfection. And his active obedience, that is, his, 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 his life of obedience is imputed to us so that we have a righteousness that is not our own. So it, we are treated as though we had kept that law. In theory, hypothetically, that is something that we were obliged to do ourselves, but nobody could. No, no, no one could. So we need, and that, and that's part of the function of the law. It increases sin. 
it makes me more sinful. It, it makes me aware of the fact and, and, and puts, puts propositional words on it. You did that wrong and that wrong and that wrong and that wrong until you say, good heavens, what can I do? And so that's part of the function of the law. So um, that's, that's, uh, that's what Leviticus 18.5 says. Keep the whole law and live. Failing that, which everyone did uniformly, they were to express faith through the performance of the Levitical cultus. There's no individual priesthood of the believer. You couldn't simply get down on your knees and pray to God. There were actually forms you had to go through. There were Levitical rituals that always stood between the Old Testament believer and his expression of faith. Now, again, circumcision, sacrifices, pilgrimages, couldn't save anyone, but no true believer would fail to do these things. Anybody who failed to do these things, their faith would immediately be suspect, just as today. You know, you come across someone, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Okay, do you, do you ever come to church? No, 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 I don't do that. Have you ever been baptized? No, no, no. Do you ever participate in communion? No, 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 we don't, I don't do those things. And uh, you would say, well, what... what? If we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews says, we're not really believers. And so our, so our faith is suspect if we don't obey. Not that the obedience saves us, but it is a demonstration uh, or at least something of an indication of our faith. Okay? So we find here that David pleads with Saul in 1 Samuel 26, 19, he's stuck out in the wilderness. It's a bleak place. Uh, he's out there begging Saul, not so I can, you know, come home and sleep in my bed for a night. What does he beg for? I, I need to come to the temple. I, well, not, actually for him it was, it was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Well, the temple wasn't there yet. Uh, so he's coming to the, to the tabernacle so that he could go through the proper forms and to be ceremonially right with God so that his prayers would be heard. And he just begged Saul so that he could just go back there so that he could take part in that. That was his plea. Okay? And even after the tabernacle is done, the temple is built and gone, what do the folks in, in Babylon do? They open their windows toward Jerusalem where there's nothing but a pile of rubble, but they pray out their windows in that direction, at least giving something of a lip service, a token acknowledgement of the fact that this is the way we ought to be doing it, but I can't. But I'm doing the best I can. Okay? This is not to say that no one could pray or stay a believer without these forms. I think Daniel's a good example of us here, a godly man who wanted to be, longed to be, back in, in, in the land of Israel, couldn't be there. Uh, but, but they always had to tie their prayers to the temple ritual, even when the temple was unavailable to them. They, they recognized that there was something between them and God. And, uh, and uh, that, was, that was the channel through which uh, they could approach him. Okay, so keep the whole law and live. Failing that, express faith through the performance of the Levitical cultus. Employ the law as a way of life for the covenant community. That's the civic function. This is how the this is how the this is how the country runs. Okay, uh, you notice they don't have prisons in uh, Israel. So how did they how did they handle those things? 
well, there was a, there was a series of fines and and uh, and punishments up to and including capital punishment. Capital punishment was used fairly liberally uh, during this during this period, uh, but uh, they had it they had it set up so they didn't even need prisons. Okay, they uh, they had it all arranged so that, that and God had it all arranged, I should say, uh, so that uh, everything functioned appropriately. If everyone simply followed the rules, they could have a really squeaky, squeak-free uh, country in which they could they could live in. And then they were to serve, finally, as a kingdom of priests for the nations. Exodus 19.6 tells us this. First, it's repeated elsewhere in 1 Kings 8. Uh, even Christ reminds us when he comes on the uh, on the on the uh, uh, when he comes into Jerusalem that this is a place uh, of, of prayer for the nations. They're supposed to be coming to employ the pre- priestly services of my people Israel. There's nobody there, but just because that's true doesn't mean you can set up a market here. Okay, this is a place of prayer for the nations. Okay. Uh, there's no command here to be actively sent out for the purpose of proselytizing the nations. There's no missionary mandate per se. There's no command, go out. But rather, there's sort of an expectation there to stream to your light. Okay, That's sort of the arrangement. Uh, we do have you know, notable exception of Jonah, uh, but he doesn't seem to be the norm. This is, this is him on a special mission. Uh, to the Ninevites, I don't think this is something that the Israelites were normally to do. Okay, nations were come to Israel, and continuing principles. Well, the law is set aside for the present dispensation, but it provides a wealth of information about the eternal ethical character of God that can at least inform our ethic in the present. So, yes, all of this has been set aside. You know, we talked we talked about the parapets, right? Last time, was that did we do that? The uh, the the the, uh, the the fence around the roof. Okay, so uh, um, there's we don't have to have uh, fences around our roofs right now. Um, might be healthy if you're trying to get the snow off, but uh, but uh, but uh, you don't have to have fences around your roof because the law has been set aside. Still, we know something about the eternal ethical character of God, right? He's concerned with safety and liability, okay? And that's why the fence was there, okay? And so we know something about the ethical character of God, and so when we make rules in our present day, uh, we should uh, take into account here uh, some of those things that uh, occurred under the law because there's some pretty good ideas there. But we're not under the law per se. It's been set aside. Which brings us then to our next dispensation, the dispensation of the church. Now, I've called it here the dispensation of the church. Perhaps the more common name you'll hear among dispensationalists is the dispensation of grace. A couple of reasons I don't, I, I don't like that term, uh, but, and, and we'll explain why that is. Or again, we're talking about how it is administered. How is God administering or carrying forward his program And so I think the appropriate vehicle of administration is the church. So that's why I'm going to call this dispensation the church. Uh, Perhaps you're used to hearing grace, uh, and I'm not going to just uh, get on you for using that. I think church may be a better term to use. Okay. 
So why was grace used? Well, I've got two reasons here, and uh, and uh, I think what what the first thing I want to do is say why I don't use that term. Okay, Ephesians three two talks about a dispensation of the grace of God. Okay, Paul speaks of this. He is a steward of the dispensation of the grace of God. Well, if that phrase is a title, then this is then God has named this dispensation for us. I am a steward of the dispensation of the grace of God. That's probably not what he's saying. He's saying, I am a steward of God's dispensation of this kind of dispensing, that is, that is, he is, you, you know, you dispense, you know, medicines. I, I, I am distributing this grace. I am the one who is the agent of distribution here. He's not saying, I am the agent of this specifically named dispensation, but rather, I am an agent of the distribution of grace, uh, which occurs here, and then he explains, what is it? Well, it's the church. Uh, the, this, uh, this new body, in which there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor bond, nor free, circumcised, or uncircumcised. So this is being set aside here. It's a new arrangement here. The new dispensation of the grace of God is the church. So that's why I call it the church. Okay. There's also another verse here in <laughs> Romans six fourteen that's sometimes used as a uh, for for uh, for the title here. It speaks of believers no longer being under law, but under grace. And so, if we're going to call this law, then maybe we should call the next one grace. Uh, but again, I think the point here that Paul is making is that when we become believers. Uh, we are not under law as a way of life that is uh, bound to keep all of its precepts and, and under the penalty thereof if we fail, uh, but we're under grace. And in, in fact, I think he could have said that during this dispensation. You're not under law, okay? You're under grace. You're not going to be judged according to this law when you stand before Christ, Okay? You are going to be you are going to be judged in accordance with the fact that you have had faith in the promises of God under salvation. That would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I don't think again that Paul's saying that there's a dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. What he's saying in this case is that law has no power over you because grace conquers in every age. Okay, and so we'll put the cross here. We know it's we know it's with Christ. I mean, we we could there's some quibbling as to where exactly it starts. Does it start to, uh, at his death, burial, resurrection, birth? Where does it start? I tend to I tend to put this at, at Pentecost. Although we've got forty days of of we don't sort of an in between. They're not really. I mean, he's he's gone to the cross. He's paid the the the, the debt. The law has been set aside, and then for the next 50, actually 50 days, 40 days, with with the disciples, and then another 10 that they wait until the day of Pentecost. So there's 50 days of nothing, and then after, right after that, then God establishes here the church. Okay, now I'm going to do this again because the church is not a theocracy. It doesn't have civic functions and cultic functions. The church down here 
has to do with the with the ruling of believers within the context of 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 their daily walk before God as Christians. There is also a civil realm. I can put it here. I'll call it Caesar. Um, obviously, the Caesars are done shortly thereafter. But the point here is there's a render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's in, in, in different contexts here. And this, is, this has long been here one of the hallmarks of the Baptist faith, right? A separation of church and state. If I can put it that way, so we're we're splitting this up again. Okay, this becomes very important for us as we're going to see here. But uh, for now, let's let's put it there, and then we'll walk through a little bit of this. Okay, duration of the dispensation begins with the establishment of the church. It really runs until the second coming. That'll be uh, the next crack in this in the uh, in the uh, board. Here is the second coming of Christ. So what's the new revelation? Well, there's an individual priesthood of the believer that allows him to approach God apart from the Levitical forms in a new and living way because Christ is now our priest. Okay, there's no more human priests other than the man Christ Jesus. Okay? Yes? Down under uh, number two, mm-hmm. you actually call it the dispensation of grace. Oh, do I? <laughs> Where is it? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> Okay, you, you caught me. <laughs> yes, so the dispensation of the church. It's a common term. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, 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 almost, it's almost part and parcel with the movement that, that almost everybody calls it that. What page is that? 24. Schofield calls it grace. Yeah, yeah. And partly, I think, because Schofield actually thought in terms of of this absolute dichotomy of they got saved by obeying the law, we get saved by grace, and that there was actually something of a dichotomy of how people were converted, um, or at least how they would uh, be right with God. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's some, you know, there's a, unfortunately, there's some lines in, in Schofield's reference Bible that I wish could. I could make go away because he, but uh, but they're there. Uh, so again, so that's my way of making them go away by changing his word actually into something I think is a little bit more accurate. Okay, so there's no more priesthood except for Christ. Christ is the new and living way. The grafting of the Gentile believers and church believers into a single new man. So if you remember up here, uh, we had. Uh, we had uh, the, the nations sort of coming, coming along here. They were supposed to be related uh, to the people in the theocracy, but they were sort of on their own. Now, whether you were from this group or from this group, you could be grafted into the one new man. It's a n- new arrangement. Uh, the old arrangement, you, there was a sharp dichotomy between circumcised, uncircumcised, the Jew, the Greek, everything, they were always kept apart. In fact, there's, there's just oodles of laws that say you've got to keep them apart. I mean, that's, that was, you can't have mixed teams, you can't have mixed clothing, you can't have mixed seeds, you can't mix anything because there's Gentiles and there's Jews and you don't mix them. 
this was strictly for Jews. Now we've got this new arrangement, this new church, this new elect community, which is made up of both Greeks and Jews, Gentiles and Jews, and they were all together in this one new man. Of course, what, re- what, what relates, what, what brings them all together is they're all believers now. Okay, so that's, that's a, again, that's the, the change in the, that's, that's the revelation, that's the mystery, the, the new element uh, within the, uh, within the, uh, or within this new dispensation. There's also a set of new commandments that effectively replaces the behavioral stipulation contained in the Mosaic Law. So it's not as though we're in some sort of an antinomian lawless state where we can do whatever we want. And sometimes you hear that from, from, uh, from if I can say, extreme dispensationalists that say we're, you know, we're completely free from rules now, we all we have we can we can do whatever we want as long as and so it, it becomes almost a, a you can it's almost a free for all that's not what is the case we're we're free from this law okay and we are free in in the, in uh, from the law in the sense that there is no amount of obedience that can make us right with God in an ultimate sense but that doesn't mean there aren't some rules whereby we're supposed to live our lives okay so. And that's, again, another reason why I prefer to call this the dispensation of, of church rather than the dispensation of grace. Because sometimes people hear that, okay, we're under grace. Yay, have fun, do whatever I want. And that was not really the intention here. Okay. Okay, so a new set of commandments. And John says this is a new set of can- commandments. It's not new, but it is new. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, it's a new set of commandments, many of which you see in the, in the Old Testament. So a lot of the, there's a, over, a lot of overlap. A lot of the laws are the same. So they're not new, but they are new because they're a new law code, if I can put it that way. So, for instance, again, I think we mentioned this before. If I wanted to cross the bridge and go into Canada, I would find I'm under a new set of laws. But they're not really new for the most part. There's a great deal of overlap. The laws are the same, but there's a new, it's a it's a separate law code, okay. And even though there's a lot of similarity, there's not identity between the law code of Canada and the law code of the U.S. Okay, so that's our new revelation, new administration. Well, the church is in its universal and local expressions. Uh, this is the new administration. This is how you are to relate to one another uh, within, within as, as believers. That's the new administration. There's not really a new administration here. Instead, this, this really, in some ways, is, is sort of reinforced. Uh, we had a dotted line here. Well, well, let's make it solid again. Okay, we've got, and, and we've got all kinds of instructions in Peter and, and, and Romans that say how are we spo- how we're supposed to relate to the powers above us, the king, the governors. And there's all kinds of instruction about how these people are supposed to relate to these people because the, the, the key thing is here, they're not the same. They're separate. Okay, so the new responsibilities will exercise faith in the provision of salvation completed once for all in Christ. Okay, so the, this... This vague promise has come to full flower here. We've seen it completed and fulfilled in Christ from the cross. Express that faith by receiving baptism, aligning with, and here's a definition of a church given by by Hiscox, a local company of regenerate persons baptized on profession of faith in Christ, 
united in covenant for worship, instruction, and the observance of the Christian ordinances, and for such service as the gospel requires, recognizing and accepting Christ as their supreme Lord and lawgiver, and taking his word as their only and sufficient rule of faith and practice in all matters of conscience and religion. Okay, so that's a church. That's what we're supposed to do, organize into those. We're also then, we have a mission. We're to, both, we're to serve as ambassadors, reconciling people to God through the, throughout the nations. And so we have the missionary mandate, the Great Commission. Again, this is something we didn't see here. We didn't say, go and tell. It's rather, come and see. Okay? Now we've, complete, we've completely reversed it. It's go and tell. Scatter. Go through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And this, this dominion, this, this not dominion, but this, this mission mandate uh, goes out and continues to go out. We're supposed to continuously be sending out, establishing new churches both locally and abroad. That's the function of the church. That's the mission. Letter D here, and here's, here's uh, perhaps, again, this is where dispensationalism comes from. The church, at least in its organized and corporate expression, does not have any specific political, social, or civil administrative responsibilities, except in an internal sense. We're supposed to take care of our own, okay? And so that, that's, that's, that's clear. We're supposed to take care of our, you know, rather than going into the civil courts for lawsuits, we're supposed to handle uh, uh, conflict between believers in-house, okay? But... But beyond that, beyond uh, you know, making sure that our little community is taken care of, there is no specific responsibility given to the corporate church on how they're supposed to uh, relate to Caesar. They're supposed to pray for him. That's about as, as much as we get. Now, I think we, we do have, uh, uh, you know, once we, once we have the ability uh, to, uh, to influence them, we should, we should do so. Um, uh, but we don't do that so much as the church, but as Christians. Okay, we are we are members of this society, and we're supposed to, we're, as as we are able, we're supposed to make this society work as well as possible. Okay, and so we vote, and so we give to charities, and we and we uh, do whatever we do whatever you do in order to make your community a better place. Shovel, shovel your neighbor's walk, and and so this is so. Here's the great commission. Here's the great commandment. Okay. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we are, and, and I'm coming to you. And so, and effectively, what we find ourselves here as dual citizens, a citizens, a citizen of the civil sphere, where we're to be the best neighbor, father, son, employee, employer, whatever function, or whether if we're a, if we're a governor or governee. All of these things, we're supposed to do this as best we can as individual believers because it effectively does advance the gospel. Because even without a word, you do these things well, you find you have a platform for the gospel. Okay? It's not so much that the church is supposed to do these things as some sort of an organism, but rather all people everywhere are supposed to do that, and Christians who do this well actually find themselves having a platform for the gospel, that is, to invite people into this sphere, which is governed by the church. Okay, good question. Should we then, 
be talking about politics in, in the church, uh -huh. not as far as telling who you uh, favor or not favor, but giving the pros and cons of what's going on in, in the government itself. Okay, that's our next box. So you're, you're thinking with me, so this is, this is great, okay? Um, hopefully we can get through the box here. I think we can, because there's a lot of quotes that I, I read pretty quickly here. So the question here, is there anything that we're supposed to be doing as a church as in terms of social political action? That's the question. That's effectively what you've asked, right? Are we supposed to be involved in politics? Is, is the church supposed to be either pushing candidates, uh, having them come give presentations in the, in the church, or uh, what, whatever, whatever we could we could list this out for a long time. That's the political. There's also the social. Okay, and and, and here's here's another part. Here is the church tasked with feeding the poor of the nation. Okay, is that part of the task? Uh, granted, we're supposed to take care of our own, and we're supposed to individually be neighborly. But is there any sort of a corporate demand that the church? Can or must, you know, open up a soup kitchen or a or a food closet or 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 whatever in order to in order to help Caesar. Okay, so that's the question we're asking. You asked the political. I'm going to broaden it not only political but also social. Okay, so that's the question here, and that's again. Remember, that's that's exactly where dispensational. Remember the history section we went through. That's where that's where dispensationalism started, right? Because the Anglican Church for Darby was saying, in order to be part of the church, you've got to give allegiance to the King of England. Or Darby, excuse me, uh, Brooks, here in, the, in, the, in, in, in Missouri, in order for you to be able to be a pastor and to have a legitimate church, you have to give your loyalty to the Union or to the Confederacy. Okay? And both of these people said, no, no, no. That's not what the church does. The church doesn't take political sides. The church is a spiritual organism where people who might have differing opinions on political matters can come together as one body in Christ. Okay? It's not to say you can't give some biblical principles. I mean, if, if the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, and, and we find that one candidate is saying, let's kill you know, the abortion kind of thing, uh, uh, then you can say, you know, that's wrong. I don't know that it would probably be the best idea to say vote for this man or this woman or don't vote for this man or this woman, but I think you can give some general guidance to someone to say someone who is a, on a platform of killing is probably one where, yeah, you probably ought to ask yourself whether that's the right person to vote for. I did that once. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was teaching an adult so. Bible study in a certain church. Yeah. And I got a, it was election time. I got an article out of Free Press. And on, on it, they had the, what the, each each person was believing in and mm -hmm. what he would what he would enact. And I, I crossed out the uh, Republican and Democrat person. I just put down the uh, certain, certain areas of abortion or whatever, you know, and and so I put all that, put it on a questionnaire, and I gave it to the class. And I said, now, you know, you know I, 
I'm not, I'm not uh, recommending any, any any party. But who would you vote for in this circumstance, morally, scripturally? You know, and um, some people really got offended because they knew that certain of those things, such abortion, was included in their party, right. and the union backed the party. So we have a union party going on versus the Bible situation, and I got called into the to the to the um, uh, Sunday school director's office, and I it was I said I wasn't I wasn't endorsing anything. All I was pointing out was who was a Christian would you vote for according to the, these certain certain items. Yeah, yeah. I think probably the 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 concern that you have to have is that you don't get too specific. And that's probably the, the problem. The, the, I, I think I don't think any. Well, maybe I, I should say it. Most people will not be concerned if you say, "Hey, there are biblical principles at stake here, and you should be thinking in terms of don't don't just go and vote your pocketbook or your kids or grandma or or whatever." You should be thinking, I'm going to vote as a Christian. And here are some factors that you should factor in. Probably, I, I guess I guess the recommendation would be more generic. Okay, what is, what he was it? very generic. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And so if they say, I talk about it's, what's the sanctity of life is important. Right. The sanctity of marriage is important. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the, con, con, concern, the, the concern for the plight of the poor is important. Uh, and you can you could list all of these things out, and you know what you end up paying is well, you know this party probably does a little bit of this, you know. It, it, so it, it helps people think I've got to think as a Christian when I vote, and I, and and if I happen to be voting for a party that has this strike, this strike, this strike, this strike, this strike, and this strike against them, and this party only has this strike and this strike, eh, you know, it, it might inform me at least. So, so I think there is a sense in which the church can say, think about these factors when you vote, um, without actually saying who to vote for. Because, because I think the, the pulpit is an appropriate place to say how to live. We say in the pulpit how you're supposed to how you're supposed to marry, right? And and how you're supposed to conduct yourself within marriage. Those are civil things. Okay. And so we give instructions on, on divorce and remarriage and, and uh, raising your children and, and honoring your parents and, and all that. And that's eminently appropriate to do. Okay, uh, So you can give instruction in the civil realm for, for people living in the civil realm without <laughs> actually saying, hey, we as the church say that you should vote for Obama or should not vote for Obama. So would I be stepping over the line if I would push for the nomination of BB for president? <laughs> well, I, I don't think he can. He, he wasn't born in America, so I don't think. Well, it doesn't make any difference now. <laughs> well, we're not going to go there. <laughs> That's okay. I know. But no, as as an individual citizen, you can do whatever you want as far as well. You 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 can do whatever you can put all you can put all the uh, all the little little. So basically, little I can talk with my buddies out in the hallway, but I can't. I got to be careful what I say. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that the church is a place for a public endorsement of Caesar yeah. or Caesar's replacement. Okay, 
But it is certainly an appropriate thing. You, you go home and you can put all those little signs in your yard. You can put 50 of them in your yard if, you, if your community will allow you to do it. I, I have no problem with that. And, and be an advocate. You can go work for the uh, Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee and, and, and work long hours for, uh, from now until 2016. That's fine. Okay, because you are a citizen of the civil realm, and if you want to, if you think that that's an important thing where you can spend your time in order to improve this realm, I don't have a problem with that. Now, don't neglect this realm in doing it, but that's, that's your prerogative. It's just I don't think that the church should be promoting Caesar, nor should Caesar be telling the church what to do within its, within its cultic arrangements here. Okay, so that there's a, there's a sharp line of demarcation between the two. The Caesar doesn't tell the church what to do, and we don't tell Caesar what to do because they're two separate realms. Okay, we're out of time. Um, so we're we're gonna uh, when, next time we're gonna come together and uh, we'll finish up our diagram finally and uh, uh, finish this this discussion here because I think this is a very important discussion. I don't want to do it really quickly uh, because this is really where dispensationalism comes from, right? Because there was this there is this attempt on multiple fronts, whether it's Anglicanism, whether it's uh, civil war and Presbyterianism. This is where it came from. There was Caesar and the Church trying to mix. And they said, no, 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 not in this dispensation. Okay. And so that's really where dispensationalism historically comes from. And so that's why uh, we want to uh, spend a little bit of time here because I think this is maybe where the most practical expression of our dispensationalism comes in. Yeah. Seriously, uh, mm -hmm. we, we learn of this very well, don't we, from our missionaries who have to walk on eggshells on that matter and not get not get caught up in the local politics. Oh yes. I think we can get ourselves in as much trouble here too. Yeah. Tends not to happen quite as much, but there's plenty of folks who've gotten in trouble. You know, lost their lost their tax free status and such because they because they they've they've been promoting Caesar or Caesar's replacement. Okay, well, we'll finish our diagram. I can keep this up one more week here, yep, no and we'll, we'll finish it up next time, I promise. Okay, we'll see you next week.